All right, good morning. This is a, a strange morning for you. It's probably somewhere between 10 and 11 o'clock. You're in the living room with your family or uh, some others from the church who may have uh, joined you. For me, it's 8.30 in the morning. The sanctuary is freezing, and I am here with my parents, uh, my wife, and then some family friends, and we are doing our best to obey the two-meter rule, even though there's only six of us. Uh, so strange morning, uh, not just a strange morning, a strange and wild uh, week, just seeing all the things that are happening and the way the world and the church respond to crises like this in uh, hopefully very different ways. Uh, and also a week and a, and a morning to be very thankful uh, for our elders and thankful to them. They have spent uh, an inordinate amount of time over the last couple of days just trying to figure out what to do. Uh, and how to handle this. And about every, you know, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, uh, the government advice changes, the health unit advice changes, the local advice changes. Uh, and so, you know, you're remaking the same decision over and over again over a period of days. Uh, and just thankful to them for bearing that burden for us and making a decision that uh, I can certainly get behind uh, just to protect uh, the flock and the population at large uh, in the midst of all of these things, but in such a way that we can still uh, do church together. So wherever you are, in your own home or somebody else's, or here with me at 8.30 this morning, uh, I hope you can just enjoy uh, the ability we have to do this. Technology enables this for us. It's a pretty incredible blessing, something we wouldn't have been able to do uh, not that long ago. Uh, and at the same time, hopefully it's not something we have to do for too long. It's not, uh, not enjoyable to miss out on our fellowship together, and certainly something that uh, Scripture would encourage us not to do for too long either. Uh, one other note I will give for those listening uh, at home is there uh, was distributed by email uh, an order of service that everybody in the church is going to follow, kind of like a, a common liturgy style. Uh, so wherever you are this week, uh, you are doing the same thing that the rest of our church is doing all over uh, the city. Uh, I've also provided uh, on the website posted with the sermon, which is the elders' announcement about this morning, and then my sermon PowerPoint is posted as well, so you can flip through. There's a couple of sections in the message that will make a lot more sense when you have the, the pictures that I'm pointing at uh, at 8.30 in the morning. So we are going to start uh, with what I would consider to be a, a, a glorious affirmation of uh, something that we believe, a pretty important tenet of our, uh, our belief, and we're also going to address a question about our text this morning. Really, before we get into the exegesis, it's a bit of a, a distraction if we kind of do it any other way. Um, so we're going to jump into uh, this first. Our text for this morning is Romans 16, but we're not going to get there yet. I want to talk about this important thing first. Uh, what we're going to talk about is uh, textual criticism and inspiration, just because it comes up in Romans 16, whether we like it or not. Uh, so first, let's pause, and we're going to talk about the importance of inspiration and why that's, why that's critical to us. Uh, what we believe is defined by uh, something called the Chicago Statement that was put out in, in the 1970s, and it's just a, a very uh, large statement put together by evangelical leaders at the time that just describes what it means to believe in the inspiration of Scripture. And that's a statement that our church turns to on this issue, and it's the one we affirm uh, corporately. So I'm just going to read some sections from it. The Chicago Statement says, and we affirm that the Holy Scriptures are to be received as the authoritative Word of God. 
that the whole scripture and all its parts down to the very words of the original were given by divine inspiration. That inspiration, strictly speaking, applies only to the autographic text of scripture, which in the province of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and translations of scripture are the word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original or the autograph. That scripture, having been given by divine inspiration, is infallible, so that, far from misleading us, it is true and reliable in all the matters that it addresses. That scripture is entirely inerrant, being free from all falsehood, all fraud, and all deceit. And we also affirm that a confession of the full authority, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture is vital to a sound understanding of the whole of the Christian faith, and we further affirm that such confession should lead to increasing conformity to the image of Christ. So just a little bit about this statement. Chicago Statement was put together in the 70s uh, by evangelical leaders as a response to increasingly liberal interpretations of the Bible based on increasingly liberal interpretations of what inspiration means. Uh, people were playing fast and loose with what it meant for Scripture to be inspired. The source of this was often poor textual criticism, and that's what we're going to talk about here now. Textual criticism is the uh, exercise, it's academic exercise, of looking at the original source manuscripts, or at least as close as we can get to original, the oldest ones we can find, and taking all the manuscript evidence, you know, 15, 20, 30, 100 copies from different ages, different languages, all kinds of things, and trying to determine from those manuscripts what the original letter or text actually said. So we're studying Romans. Nobody has the original letter to the Romans penned by Paul. That's not uh, existent as far as we know, or extant is the academic word. Uh, we don't have that. But what we do have is a massive number of copies from all different periods of time, all different places in the world, all different languages, and the practice of textual criticism is to try to determine what Paul's original writing said based on all the copies. And between all those copies, there, there are some uh, small differences, and in, in some of the copies, there's large differences. Uh, most of them are things like scribal error, where they just copied a word twice, or copied a sentence twice, put it in the wrong spot. Uh, those sorts of things, changed the tense of something or changed a hymn to Jesus when it's talking about Jesus, do some interpretation there. Uh, and there's also languages that exist due to uh, language differences, where one, one uh, script says one thing and the other one says slightly different, but it's in a different language. So criticism is all about how do we assess what the original said. And liberal interpretations or liberal approaches to this uh, textual criticism, they basically conclude that we just don't know what it said. So th there's a lot of things we just can't know anymore because we don't have the original autograph. Um, better textual criticism, and uh, based on the Chicago Statement, evangelical textual criticism says, we have a massive amount of textual evidence, huge. So much and so little difference between them that we can very, very close determine what the original letter said and certainly if not exactly what it said, what its intent was. And there are very few differences, if any, none that I'm aware of, that really impact uh, anything as far as our understanding goes, and nothing that impacts any critical or core theology. The reason we're talking about this, because it seems wildly off-topic from Romans, is there is a manuscript difference in our passage, and depending on what Bible translation you have, it reads really oddly, or, or will actually read just totally differently than mine. 
So the, the difference that's going to come up is in Romans 16, verse 24. So if you open your Bible, if you have an ESV, you just don't have a verse 24. So that's why it's distracting and we need to deal with it early. Uh, verse 24, again, an ESV is just not there. So you'll have verse 23 and then verse 25, and that's it. If you've got NIV, it'll have uh, verse 23, and then it'll have a number 24 with a little star next to it or something, and then the, there's a footnote that talks about it. And if you have uh, KJV, uh, it just includes it, because that's the manuscript they were using, transcript. And then NASB, I think, includes it in brackets. So all over the place, different interpretive approaches to this uh, textual difference. So I'm going to read it for you, uh, including verse 24. So here's what it says. I appeal to you, brothers, this is starting in verse 17, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And the end of verse 20, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus, greet you. And then verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And then it continues in verse 25, him is able to strengthen you. So the difference is that addition, that uh, verse 24. So if you know, if you look at it, it's literally just a repetition of verse 20. Uh, so verse 20 at the end says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Verse 24 says the same thing followed by an amen. Um, so depending on when a translation, an English translation of scripture was written, they usually did this different ways. So KJV was using uh, copies of the text that included verse 24. Uh, but most of those copies didn't actually have the second half of verse 20. So most academics think that that portion of verse 20 was just moved to the end by scribal error. Uh, since the KJV was published, more and more manuscripts have been found, and most of them, especially the older ones, older than the ones the KJV translators were using, don't have that portion uh, in verse 24. It's only in verse 20. So it's most likely... Uh, and at least this is the conclusion of most scholars, that verse 24 wasn't in Paul's original letter. Uh, it's just a copy from verse 20 there and then inserted at the bottom. So th the reason we go through this is because it's present. If you're following through in the ESV with me, uh, if you're noting carefully what's going on, like me, the first time you read through it, you realize you went from 23 to 20 25, and that's kind of weird. So it's worth addressing that uh, just to deal with those kinds of questions. The Bible has not been edited. It is not... Uh, something we have, the ESV editors have just changed on a whim. It's based on really good textual manuscript evidence. So all of this, it's not a critical difference, right? It's literally the same phrase Paul wrote. So Paul said it, it's just whether he said it twice. Uh, it's not a critical difference, but it's present, so something worth addressing. And in all of this, what I want us to remember is the things that we affirm from the beginning. We affirm this is a summary of it, that the whole of Scripture in its original autograph, so what Paul wrote, were given by divine inspiration, that they're infallible, inerrant, and vital to a sound understanding of the faith, and should lead to increasing conformity with Christ. So despite a minor textual difference, those things are all true of the translation that you are holding. Whether it's KJV, that just has the same phrase twice, or ESV and NASB, uh, doesn't really matter, 
Uh, those are all uh, workable translations and deal with this in different ways. So not critical, but uh, worth, worth recognizing in light of inspiration of Scripture. So with that aside, that distraction dealt with, now we can go to uh, expositing the actual text, the inspired text, uh, what it is that we are going to look at this morning is Romans 16. We're actually going to finish out the book. So we're going to do the whole chapter uh, today. First, though, let's place ourselves in the book of Romans. So Romans is a long book. We've been teaching it. Uh, it's been taught here for a year. I think we started last February, so we're in 13 months of Romans. Easy to lose track of what has happened in that period of time, and, and many have joined the church in that period of time. So weren't uh, around or present for that teaching. So it's important that we place ourselves, especially towards the end of this study of Romans, in the book itself. So the summary that we have been uh, repeating for months is, uh, is a common one. Paul starts the book of Romans, and he walks through the whole of the gospel, and then some additional uh, theology in there. He gives us lots of theology at the beginning, the orthodoxy of the letter, and then from chapter 12 to the end, he gives us what we would call the orthopraxy, or the, the right living uh, in the book of Romans. There's a, a really clear divide there. In the first section, the orthodoxy, we first get the gospel in chapters 1 through 8. First, Paul explains uh, the principles of wrath and propitiation, that God has wrath against sin, and it's a just wrath. And he is, and does, and has, and will pour out that wrath on sin. We also learn that that wrath applies to us because we have sin, and we're in sin. And God uses uh, Christ to sacrifice and to substitute him for us. So Jesus takes our penalty of sin and uh, applies it to himself uh, and we are substituted in that way. He takes our sin, and we take his glory. Uh, then we also learn in chapters 4 and 5 about justification. There's a great trade there that I alluded to at the end. We swap our sin for the glory of Christ. And that happens in a moment when we are saved. And then in chapters 6 and 7, Paul says, in addition to justification, it's not just about being saved in a moment— we are then further sanctified. There's a transformation that goes on in us through the remainder of our life. We have placed in us a new heart, a living heart, in place of a heart of stone. Uh, you can go elsewhere in Scripture to see that before Christ, we are dead. We can't do anything to respond. But after Christ, we are alive. Heart of stone to a heart of flesh. We are changed and can therefore become more like Christ. Then chapter 8, Paul speaks to glorification. Uh, there will be a day when either we uh, die and then are with Christ, and then eventually when Christ returns, that we will join him in full glory through bodily resurrection. And that is an exciting thing that we can look forward to and that we know is coming from Scripture. Then chapters 9 through 11, Paul finishes out the section on theology by saying, you know, we, we spent eight chapters on salvation and how that works and what it's about and uh, the, the key principles of it. And then chapters 9 through 11, he goes into election. If, if this is how salvation works, how do you actually get in it? Who is saved and why and what's the principle there? And Paul starts with 
uh, the election of the nation of Israel. And um, most of this section 9 through 11 is, is really distinguishing between uh, Israel and the Gentiles. How do those people groups relate? Why did God choose Israel? Why not the other nations? How does it work then that Gentiles can be saved? Uh, and those same principles of God electing Israel from among the nations, Paul then extends to uh, believers in Christ. Those who are in Christ are elected from among the world. And then we get into chapter 12 through 16, and Paul outlines a large section on right living. So he talks about how Christians are to fulfill the whole of the law. Uh, he talks about how Christians and churches are to support missions in chapter 15. We get there. And then finally, Paul gets to chapter 16, and he sends a significant number of greetings to people in the church uh, and then he writes some final concluding thoughts and a benediction. So that's where we are in the book of Romans. That gets us to chapter 16. This confession, that outline of the gospel, those principles of salvation, are what we hold to in common with believers in Christ. Uh, it's an incredible bond that we have, an incredible set of things we believe, and an incredible God that we share. So with that, let's read uh, Romans 16, starting in verse 1. I'll go right through to the end. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Cancray, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote the letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed 
and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever more through Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, as I, pr- I pray as we spend the rest of our time just expositing this text, this word from you, this inspired word from you, that we would uh, see what it is that we can learn from this, just have a better understanding of how the Christians in the early church related to one another as they existed uh, in the form, early form that they did in homes and celebrating together, Lord, that we understand more of that certainly today. I pray that through this text we would uh, just recognize it more and more in your name. Amen. So there's three key things happening in this passage. The first category of things that we'll talk about uh, is all of the greetings. There's a lot of people. Paul says a lot of stuff. They're going, Paul is greeting people, and then all the people Paul is with are greeting people. There's a lot of things happening there. Uh, The second thing that happens is Paul's final appeal. That's that section on false teaching. We'll talk about that. And the third thing that's happening is the, the doxology or the benediction of the letter at the end, and that we're going to leave for Adam's summary of Romans in, in two weeks. He'll, he'll exposit that section throughout the letter. So first, let's talk about the people of the letter. Who is it that Paul is even talking to? And, and why is it important? Why should we dwell on it? Because I think, uh, honestly, most of us read these sections of letters kind of like we read a genealogy in the Old Testament. We start seeing names, and we just start skimming. And that's a a totally normal reaction. It's the way I read most genealogies, unless I, you know, I'm studying the genealogy. You you just move over it quickly. But there's things to see here. So first, what's going on? Paul and his companions, the people he's with, are sending greetings of all kinds— to early church believers that they either know are in Rome or they think are in Rome. It's a significant delay between when Paul heard from the church of Rome last, when he writes the letter, and then sends it, and when it gets there. So there's a a significant possibility some of the people he's trying to talk to just aren't there anymore. Uh, And hopefully this letter eventually finds them as it would have been distributed throughout the church. One of the things that we often forget, at least I think, is that there were people in the early church. We think about you know, Peter, probably mostly Paul, and that's our comprehensive understanding of who the early church was, because we read Acts, and that's how Acts works. Acts follows Peter uh, in the city of Jerusalem, and then it follows Paul as he goes increasingly further, right? Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, according to the structure of that, that book of Acts. So those are the people we have in mind. What we forget is the church was full of people, who did things and had stories and lived lives and followed Jesus Christ in whatever context they were in. The church was bigger than Peter and Paul, although they are the ones that we hear the most about. And there were other evangelists, other missionary journeys uh, that aren't recorded in Acts, and we don't know for sure what happened with those because they weren't uh, recorded so well and so frequently, but there's a significant number of global church traditions that can uh, lend us some insight into where some people went. I'll just give you one example. This is the one with significant church tradition behind it, lots of history here. Uh, most churches in India and a lot of the, the older churches in Europe would traditionally hold that Thomas, doubting Thomas, got as far as India in his preaching and teaching. So you can, there's a lot of study there, uh, lots of information behind that statement, and we don't even know if it's true, but it probably is. And those apostles, those other disciples, spread far and wide 
in the share of the gospel. So it's not just Paul. There are lots of people, lots of churches, lots of Christians uh, in that time. So we're going to walk through some of them. Uh, again, if you, if you found the slides posted, uh, I'll just get you to go to number five first. It's the one with all the colors on it that's kind of freaky looking. So this one is uh, just, this is what we're going to go through for the next couple of minutes. The first thing we're going to look at is all the people. So that's everything highlighted in blue. So if we go to the next one, it just shows the blue. It's a little bit easier on the eyes. So these are the things you want to talk about first. This is all the people that Paul lists. I didn't count them, although I feel like now I should have. There's lots of people here. Uh, And again, there's church history behind who these people are and what they did. Some we know next to nothing at all about. Like they are mentioned in this letter, and that's all we know about them. Others, we know more, and I'll just give you some examples, again, just so we, we realize and remember that the church is made of people and always has been. First example, uh, Priscilla, I'm just going to check my note there, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, Prisca and Aquila, sorry. Uh, we know a lot about them, actually, from Scripture, so we know that they uh, came to Corinth the city of Corinth. They met Paul there. They'd actually fled from Rome when a a Roman emperor made a decree that Christians couldn't be in Rome. So they fled from persecution, came to Corinth. Uh, They were tent makers, so they employed or worked with Paul while he was there, uh, and they ministered with him for years. They then moved to Ephesus and ran into Paul there again. Uh, They trained uh, a guy named Apollos, who comes up a fair bit. He was a, a really incredible teacher and speaker, but he didn't have his theology quite nailed down, so they helped him. And then from this letter, it sounds like after the persecution ended, they actually returned to Rome. So uh, they're presumably husband and wife, and and we have a whole life story about them just from writings in the New Testament. Uh, There's another interesting example, just the kinds of people Paul would have written to. There's one section in there that says, uh, write to, I think it's in ESV, those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. It's right in the middle. Uh, in, in the original Greek, that's actually just those of Aristobulus, and that meant the slaves of him. So it was his whole household and his servants and his slaves, and Paul is greeting those people because they're believers and they're in the church. Uh, another example of this is a guy named Herodian. Herodian is not really a name. Herodian is a people group, like a type of family, so you were a Herodian. Uh, so likely what happened with this guy, uh, this is at least what most scholars think, is that he was a slave to a Herodian family, and then when he was released, you would often take a new name, and he just took their corporate identity as his name, because Herodian's not a name, it just doesn't make any sense. So that's uh, likely what happened there. So another person who was a slave and took the opportunity to be free. Another interesting character, maybe here anyway, there's a guy named uh, Rufus, uh, towards the bottom, it says Rufus, and it says something about his mother, I think. Where'd he go? Uh, so Rufus says he's beloved. Uh, Rufus is quite possibly the same Rufus mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark, towards the very end, when Jesus is carrying his cross, he mentions a guy named uh, Simon of Cyrene, who was made to carry the cross of Christ. And uh, Mark says that Simon was the father of Rufus. Maybe the same guy, maybe not, uh, but quite possibly. So another mention here uh, just of someone who's got a story. Quite possibly this guy's dad carried the cross of Christ and became a believer, and then so Rufus did as well. And then you read through the others, and you just see an incredible cross-section, incredible view of who the church was. 
Uh, you see groups of home churches pretty much anywhere where you see two names. That's probably a, a, a husband and wife, and often they had a, a church in their home. Uh, there were family members of Paul and family members of his friends who were with him. There were Jews, there were Gentiles. He addresses pastors, he addresses lay members. There's no, uh, real, there's no rule or exclusivity around who he talks to. He addresses them all the same. He greets them all, he loves them all, uh, and he treasures them all, and they're all members of the church. All this to say, and, and to hopefully help, that I think we often forget that the church especially in the, in the New Testament, was made up of people. And often, even in our own church context, we forget the same thing. Uh, if you're a person like me in a church where Sunday is mostly made up of the list of things you need to do between 9 a.m. and 12 p.m., and less the people you need to talk to or the people that you will see, uh, I can often forget that our church has people in it. Because I don't see them, or I'm busy, or I have things I need to accomplish. And so this, I think, is a great reminder that Paul treasured the people of the church, and we ought to as well. Uh, so I'll just give you one, one example, uh, and this one is, is the timing just uh, makes sense to share a little bit about with you. So let's talk about Timo, and Timo's not here to give me a dirty look to make me stop, so good morning, Timo. Uh, Timo just joined our church not that long ago. I know Timo from uh, Camp Minioe. That's where I cross paths with him on staff up there. Uh, Grace, my wife, crossed paths with Timo uh, back at New Life when her family was there and his as well. So they uh, kind of grew up in that church together a little bit. Uh, Timo finished uh, an undergraduate degree through Heritage. Uh, I don't know what the rest of the words are. It's either a college or university at the end. Heritage something. Uh, so he's got a four-year bachelor degree, and he's just moved to Barry, and he's working in a call center, working on his, his student debt, and he's uh, joining the church in membership. So like, that's one, and that's a trivial, you know, a simple, small example, but that's a guy in the church who a lot of you probably don't know, and he's got a story, he's got a life, he's got a plan, he's got hopes, and he has, most importantly, common faith with us in Christ. So that's the first thing. The church is made of people, and it's important that we know it and remember it regularly. Paul doesn't just talk about people, though. He also talks about uh, how to treat these people. And he gives us really in, in two different ways here, and I've got this, this section kind of called the love. These are the ways that we ought to be known. So the first way he says that we, or shows that we need to love one another is in word. Paul doesn't just say to greet these people, he also says lots of things about them. He loves them in his words, and he describes them in just awesome ways. So if you go to the next uh, scripture passage slide, I think it's number nine, this is all the sections highlighted in orange. This is all the things that Paul says about these people, how he describes them. And I think that they are just pretty incredible. We talked about Phoebe last week. Adam's sermon was all about Phoebe as a deacon, so that's his description uh, there. He speaks all about people who are fellow workers with him who have sacrificed much or work hard or done much, even sacrificed much for the Roman church, worked hard for you. He's got people who are fellow prisoners with him or who have gone to prison. Uh, he talks about Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers who risked their necks for my life. And we don't even know what that's about. Like, that's a whole New Testament story we have no context on. No idea. They saved Paul's life. Amazing. All of these phenomenal things that he says, someone who has been a mother to him, uh, he 
highlights the, the writer of the letter, all these people who are hosting churches in their home, which depending on where they live was a, was a dangerous thing and an incredible sacrifice. Paul is not shy in saying amazing things about amazing people. He is glad to boast in fellow believers in the church. He doesn't say a whole lot about himself, but he says lots about other people. So the question is, do we have these kinds of things to say about fellow believers? Do we exert our energy boasting in other people's work in the kingdom rather than our energy uh, boasting in our own? And I'll just, again, let's, I'm going to give you some examples. Um, and again, there's nobody here to give me dirty looks for telling the things that they are doing, so I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Uh, first, uh, let me tell you about Hayden. Hayden uh, is a brother in Christ here at the church. I love Hayden. Uh, he works at Georgian College in the bookstore in the shipping area, moving packages around the college and, and, and are receiving books for the store. Uh, and he recently was made, uh, I guess, permanent part-time or something, so he uh, has the ability now to hire coworkers and set the schedules. And he used that opportunity to hire two uh, other young guys from the church who needed work. Uh, one who was a, is an international student and just came and needed money to support his family here, uh, and another just out of high school looking, looking for a job. That's an incredible way to serve the kingdom, provide uh, employment in a time of need to those who, uh, who could use it and would be blessed buy it. And in the same category, there's many entrepreneurs and business owners in our church who do the same thing, who employ fellow members in the kingdom, and that's an incredible blessing for the church. Uh, let me give you another one. Duncan and Trish. Duncan, uh, most recently an elder here at the church, but there are lots of things they have done in their life that I suspect most of us wouldn't do. Uh, an incredible work in the kingdom that they have done. They spent a significant period of time, I don't remember exactly how long, so I'm not going to say it, but I, uh, eight months, a year, long enough anyway, uh, in South Africa, working in, uh, uh, with Emmanuel's Wish, I believe, running their whole uh, ministry and, and foundation in that area. So dealing with, uh, I was going to say, I've got an orphanage there, and um, lots of other ministries running out of that facility, and they left, dropped their whole life here for a significant period of time and went and did that. They've uh, shown love in fostering uh, in working with local missions and local people, and now through Duncan as an elder. Uh, another one I'll highlight are just our elders corporately. They do significant, incredible work uh, for us, for our betterment, for our protection, for our teaching, bearing the weight of decisions like this morning, whether to even do church, uh, taking the weight of church discipline and of membership uh, and of uh, approving right doctrine and the responsibility to shepherd us. That's just, again, three examples of people that we can boast about in our church who have done amazing things for the kingdom, and that is something worth, uh, worth doing and worth spending energy on is to boast about one another. Uh, and it is a way that we can and should be known inside and outside of the church. It is known for our love in our words. 
Paul doesn't just uh, show love for these people in words. He also shows love for them in deed or in action. And that's the next color on our text here is green. Paul does a lot of things, and he also tells the church in Rome to do a bunch of things uh, with these people and just with one another. Uh, Paul says, Phoebe's the best example. He says, Phoebe, I commend her to you. Uh, and church, welcome her into your body and help her with anything that she needs. Uh, he also thanks the Lord for that church, that I am thankful for you. And he spends a huge amount of time with every person he addresses saying to greet them, find this person, say that Paul loves them, say that Paul says hello and he greeted them in his letter and he's excited to see them all if he gets to Rome. Uh, and he also says uh, to greet one another with a holy kiss, which is a, a scriptural command that we will not be pursuing the next number of weeks, uh, but it's, it's there, right? It's that principle of we don't just greet one another because we go to the same church and you need to wave at the grocery store and you see each other. We, there's love that's supposed to be there. You don't just greet anybody with, with a holy kiss. If you want to know about that, talk to Yosef. He's the only man I have ever known who actually does this. So he's the guy, he's the resident expert. Yosef is our resident holy kisser. <laughs> Uh, not only does Paul highlight loving one another through deed, uh, just here he's springboarding off of in his life uh, just a, an incredible theme right through Scripture of how the people in the kingdom of God ought to treat each other. And the key thing is that it's different than the way the world treats each other. We can start right back with Israel and in their giving of the law in Leviticus, the way that Israelites were to treat each other is different than the way they treated the nations. If an Israelite was in debt to another, another Israelite, uh, they could then enslave themselves to pay off that debt. But slavery of an Israelite was limited to debt repayment. You couldn't just enslave someone by capturing them or, you know, they're in debt to you forever. Israelite to Israelite, not an option. That was not something you could do. Uh, debts were the same thing. You could only be indebted to someone for so long for so much money, for these purposes only. Uh, you couldn't lend one another money at interest in the nation of Israel. You weren't allowed to take advantage of one another in that way. Uh, and they had this other incredible thing the Lord set up for them called the, the year of Jubilee. It happened every 49 years. In theory, we don't, we don't really know if it even ever happened in the Old Testament. There's indication maybe twice, but we're not really sure. Uh, but the principle of the Jubilee was that every 49 years, all of the debts, all of the land ownership would reset. So you could never take advantage of someone forever because in 50 years, everything they owed you was just canceled, was wiped away. All of the land you purchased from them and reduced their family to nothing, you had to give back. You could only really lease land in Israel. You actually couldn't buy it. You could not take it because the Lord, it's his land, he says in Leviticus. The land is, is not yours, it's mine, and I allocated who owns what, and you can't change that. So pretty incredible in the nation of Israel how they had to treat one another very differently than the nations around them. Jesus extends this expectation to the members of the kingdom in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Uh, I'm just going to go to Matthew 5, verse 43. You can flip there if you want, but you don't need to. I'm going to read it. So Matthew 5, 43. Again, the principle being that believers need to treat one another differently than the world does. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, 
and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That passage uh, really highlights significant themes right through the Sermon on the Mount. It's actually part of what our senior high youth uh, are memorizing this semester, is, is that section of the Sermon on the Mount, along with, I think, two others. Uh, and what Jesus is highlighting here, he says, if you just love the people who love you, if you just greet the people who are attached to you through, you know, uh, family relationship or business connection or whatever, you're no different than the world. That's how the world works. We don't stand out. We are not different from our faith. We are not being sanctified if we behave the way the world does. If we only love those who love us, if we only greet those we have relationship with already, especially in the church and even outside, we are no different than the world. These things are especially important to remember in times like these. There is crisis, right? People are freaking out. And the world is behaving towards one another in increasingly sinful ways in a time of desperation. And the way that we need to love one another in word and in deed and love the world, this is a phenomenal opportunity for the difference in Christians to be seen, right? We're told that we will be known by our love. And this is the kind of scenario where that has to be clear. It must be obvious, or we, we need to ask ourselves some serious questions. So the question is, do we do this? Paul asks the same thing. He says uh, in Romans 15, he expresses the same sort of expectation. In Romans 15, uh, verses 1 through 7. It says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who fell on, uh, reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days is written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And this is the most related part. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That command is an incredible one. It fits in the category of uh, any command where we're told to do something the way that Jesus does it. We just can't do that. When, you know, we're, we're to love the way that Jesus loves or forgive the way that Jesus forgave us, or in this case, to welcome one another the way that Jesus welcomed us into his kingdom. Jesus did that through death, through sacrificing himself for us in order to welcome us in that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. How much work is it to be loving and welcoming to one another in a church community and even outside? The expectation is that those of us who have a common bond in Christ uh, 
uh, we're required to do these things for one another, to love one another in deed, to love one another in word, to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us all for the glory of God. With a common confession as incredible as we have, a God in common uh, so incredible, what little differences do we have that can matter in light of those things? You like different, you know, different pop culture references? You talk about things in different ways? You have different education, different social background, different economic, like a different way you live, different budget line, different cash flow? Like, who cares? You, you both have Christ. And beyond that, what matters? So the question from here, then, is how can we better love one another in word and deed? Uh, how can we do these things uh, more effectively as a body in the way that Paul certainly did for the church in Rome? So that's the three principles from Paul's greeting. And we'll go back to the slide with all the crazy colors on it, which hopefully doesn't look as crazy anymore. Right? We've got all the people he addressed, the people he loves, the people he knows, the people he hopes are there that they might hear from him. Uh, and then in orange, the love that he shows in his words, these incredible descriptions of people that are in the church that he wants to share who they are and what they've done and the blessing they've been. And then the uh, instructions to the church to love these people in the way they treat them, to welcome them, to help them, to greet them, to welcome them as Jesus Christ did. And those, I think, are the three things we can, we can get from or understand from Paul's uh, greetings to the people. The second section of text uh, for this morning is the final exhortation, the final appeal of Paul in uh, verse 17 of chapter 16. So I'm just going to read that section again. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice in you, but I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent as to what is evil, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul's final appeal in his letter to the Romans uh, is to beware of false teaching. And it might seem kind of out of line with the rest of the letter. It doesn't seem to make as much sense. Why is it here? He spent all this time talking about doctrine and theology and right living and good practice. Where in the world does this warning about false teaching come? Why is it important? Why does he include it? Well, if you track the rest of Paul's ministry and you read the rest of his epistles, in most other churches that he wrote to, Paul went there first. So he went to the city and he, most often, established a church. He trained uh, the people there. He established elders, enough of a plurality to run the church and keep it going. And then a year, two years, three years, four years, he would hear from them. And nine times out of ten, they'd gone off the rails because false teaching had creeped into the church. And almost all of his epistles, uh, including Romans with this little warning, but almost all of his epistles focus largely on dealing with false teaching. And it's what they're about. I've heard from you, church, all these wild things that are going on, let's address the false teaching. 
in a number of instances, he names people. He says, get them out of your church. They are spreading lies. They are making up things. They have a false gospel. Get them out. He spends all of this energy trying to keep and protect the church from false teaching. The church in Rome, Paul doesn't know. He's never been there. He didn't establish it. The church established by others. Lots of people, like uh, the two we highlighted earlier, who returned when the persecution ended. So he's seen them, and he knows them, and he knows they're part of the church, but he doesn't know the church. So he's got to establish for them what the gospel is. He wasn't there. He didn't start the church. He doesn't know what they believe, and he wants to at first be sure that their gospel, their doctrine, at the base level is sound. So he writes in the book of Romans. I think Adam said previously that he's pretty convinced Romans is basically Paul's sermon notes. I think that's a reasonable uh, synopsis. Paul sends them his summary sermon. This is what the gospel is. He says, with that doctrine, with this teaching, with this understanding, you still need to be aware, Romans 16, of false teaching. It will come. It does come. It's dangerous. And all of the rest of Paul's epistles bear that out. Churches face false teaching, and we've got to deal with it in a way that protects the church. Uh, you can read through other letters. You can see the kinds of things that were cropping up then. Uh, there was lots of issues with trying to transfer uh, Old Testament Jewish law into, into the New Testament church. Uh, and things like trying to enforce circumcision, that was a really common one. In order to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew first. Uh, and he dealt with that one. You can read all about it in his epistles. Uh, other ones where he just says uh, myths or irreverent babble or whatever. He doesn't even address it. He says, it's so silly. Just give it up. Like, stop talking about endless genealogies. They just don't matter. Leave those things alone. Uh, he talks about another one where there was a group of people saying that the resurrection had already happened. He says, well, Jesus was raised from the dead, and, and everybody else was too. And if you weren't, well, you missed it. Like, the, the, it's over. Jesus came back. Uh, and he says, that's a false teaching. And if it was then, it still is now. Uh, he talks about another one. He says, there's, there's these groups of people who are ascetics, and they essentially just say that everything physical is evil. The spiritual world is good. This is based in Greek thought. It's not Christian at all. The physical world is evil, everything about it. So what you eat, what you exercise, physical pleasure, all of these things are evil. And we need to eat enough to survive and punish our bodies. And it's not about this world. And forget everybody else. And it's all about the spirit within me. Uh, and those people, again, we know that's not biblical. We believe firmly in physical resurrection from the dead. This body that I am in, the Lord will reconstitute. However I'm dead and how long it's been, uh, I will be raised in physical new life. We're not floating in the clouds. So what does Paul say specifically? He gives us four instructions or four comments about these people. First thing he says is watch out. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been, ta doctrine you have been taught. So first thing, if somebody is causing a division in the church, raising an obstacle in the church that is explicitly contrary to something we know absolutely from Scripture, watch out. Be aware of them. Look out for them, because they're out there. Be aware of those people. Not only watch out for them, number two, avoid them. People who come into a church and teach things contrary to Scripture, look out, because they're out there, and avoid them. Do not associate with people spreading false teaching. Why don't we do that? Number three, such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. They serve our own appetites. 
people who spread dissension in the church by teaching things contrary to known definitive doctrine are not serving the kingdom of God. They are serving themselves. And lastly, how do they do that? By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. In order to be an effective false teacher, you have to be well-spoken. Nobody believes you if you can't speak well. So they're well-spoken. Otherwise, it's, it's not successful. Not only are they well-spoken, they tell you things that you want to hear. They flatter you through their teaching. They affirm positions you hold. They affirm who you are. Uh, there's another letter uh, Paul writes that says, look out for false teachers who literally go door-to-door and find the weak women in your church and convince them of false things. It's the same idea. They smooth talk. They flatter. And they, by doing these things, deceive the heart's of the naive, those who are not as firm in their faith, those who are new in their faith, those who are coming out of different expressions of faith that don't align with what the gospel says, people who are coming into this and just figuring it out, are at most risk of false teaching. So knowing the gospel, having received this letter from Paul, and in our case, having sat under a year of teaching it, this warning still applies to us. Like, just because we think we know a lot of things doesn't mean that false teaching isn't a danger. We still have to be aware of false teachers. And not only aware of them, we also have to protect one another, those in the church, those who have naive hearts, who are still learning, who are new, who are susceptible to these things. I am very thankful when I get to passages like this that there are uh, men in the church, the plurality of elders, who bear this burden primarily. They have taken that task upon themselves to ensure that the church is protected from false doctrine. They work hard to ensure that the teaching is sound, that the doctrine that our church affirms is sound, and that our membership is healthy. And so many ways they do this. Uh, One of the things they do is proofread sermons. So I sent this uh, to them on Thursday, and they've seen it ahead of time. And if there were things in it that were not were not good teaching that were false or were questionable or they weren't sure about, I would have, they would have told me and I would remove them. So they proofread sermons. Uh, They also recommend resources to us. These are things that are good, that are safe, that are true, that you can use. Uh, They also identify false teaching for us. Do the opposite, right? These are resources that are not good, that are false, that are misleading, or take this with a grain of salt, or this is good with the exception of, all those kinds of things. Uh, They also address theological concerns. So the church reaches a crossroad or somebody brings up a question and it's maybe not definitive in scripture. Maybe it's a gray area or maybe it leans one way or the other. And they say, okay, you know, this this issue perhaps isn't important enough that we need to make a decision and and we can all uh, associate together and believe different things on this. And there's lots of theological questions like that. Or there's other ones that say this theological question, although it isn't necessarily definitive, and you might be able to hold two really good biblical positions that are pretty close, it affects our practice in a church setting so much that we need to make a decision, and we're going to do the study of scripture and choose one of those things. And if you go on the church website, there's a bunch of elders' uh, statements that apply to those things. How are we going to treat these specific issues in our church? And they do that work in order to protect us. They bear that burden. Concluding his appeal, Paul rejoices in the faith of the believers. He says, Your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. 
And we, so thankfully, can do the same thing. Our church body is one that we can rejoice over. Even the section previously, do we know one another? Yeah, we do. Our church is so well connected. And Grace tells me all the time, she says, the thing I love most about our church is that when I see someone in the grocery store, they're excited to see me. And that for her is the hallmark of a healthy church. And I think she's right. It's a beautiful indicator. When you see someone, you're excited to see them. You love them. Do we love one another in word? I absolutely think so. There's a phenomenal community uh, here of people who love one another and know one another and share good things about one another. Do we love one another indeed? Absolutely, I think so. Again, I mentioned a few examples, but there's so many more of examples of, of people who are loving one another in the way that they live, whether it's providing housing or work or just uh, time in prayer and investment, uh, running ministry that serves one another. All of those things are a way that we love one another indeed. Uh, and do we protect uh, each other from false teaching? Yeah, we went through that too. The elders bear that burden primarily, but we do as well. In whatever context we operate in within the church, we can work and do work to protect one another. So we can certainly rejoice in the faith uh, of our church, the way that Paul does with the Romans. He finally writes then that he desires that the church, that those believers will be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. And I think this is just a phenomenal summary of the gospel. We know what, it, what is good are the things of Christ. Start with the easy ones. The gospel is good. The word of God is good. Our sanctification is good. Our association with the church is good. Pick the easy ones. Those things are all very good. Things that are evil, start on the other end. Sin is evil. A related example here, false teaching is evil. Pick all the different things that, that are the easy ones. And then uh, the middle ground between those two things, you can only fill in with wisdom and experience. Right? We know the really good things, we know the really bad things, and there's this big gray section in the middle that life and wisdom and experience fills in for you. One thing I will highlight here, though, is Paul doesn't say to do good and not do evil. He says to know what is good, be wise to what is good, and be innocent as to what is evil. It's not just doing and not doing. It's knowing and not knowing. It's being and not being. He says, be wise to what is good. Not only do we need to know who Christ is, we need to invest time to learn and study and grow and build relationship with Christ. Not only do we need to not do what is evil, we need to be innocent of it, free from it. Innocence from evil means that we have an awareness of it because it's there. You can't live your life and not know that evil is out there. Go to the grocery store. It's nuts, right? There is visible evil in the world, everywhere you go. But being innocent of it means we're not obsessed with it. We don't focus on it. We don't dwell on it. We don't investigate it. We acknowledge it, and we move on. We know it's there, but it's not our focus. We know it's there, but it's not important to us. It's present. It's just evil. Uh, there's another passage that I believe Paul writes, and scripture references are not my strong suit, but he says, uh, you know, set your mind on things above. He gives a big list. Those are the things that you need to commit your mind, your time, your thinking to, not the things that are evil. Lastly, and quite applicably, 
Paul says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul says to the church, whatever context you're in, whatever home church you're in, whatever persecution exists, and in the church of Rome, that came and went, like, daily, whether they were persecuted or not, over a period of hundreds of years. Whatever place you're in as a church, you can take comfort in the fact that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath us. The Lord will return, and Satan will be crushed. Right out of Genesis. So even now, when we can't gather, when you're at home in your living room listening to me an hour from now, even when there is a global virus pandemic like one that we or our parents or grandparents have never seen in about 100 years, even as the world certainly appears to fall apart around us and sin is so rampant and visible, we must take comfort in this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. He will come. He will crush Satan. He will return. And not only will he come and crush Satan, but we already know he's won. That battle is fought. It's over. Jesus is already reigning as our king. And one day he is just coming back to claim what is rightfully his. And in that, in any circumstance, we can rejoice. There was uh, a letter written by Martin Luther from Wittenberg when he was pastor slash mayor slash police chief and everything there. Uh, and it was a letter written by him in response to dozens of pastors in his country who were panicking uh, because for them the plague was coming, the big plague out of China. Uh, and in those days, things moved slowly because people moved slowly. So they had weeks, months to know. And in those cities and in Wittenberg, people just fled for the hills. They literally went into the woods. And the pastors were saying, what do we do? How do we pastor these people? Do we stay? Do we go? What's the response? Well, we're not dealing with bubonic plague. That was what uh, Luther was facing. But he said, we have no reason to fear. We have a God who is one uh, and who will redeem us no matter how we die. And as a pastor, you must stay. You cannot leave. You must minister to your people and to the people of your town uh, at any risk. And they had the same comfort that we do in light of something much more severe. And so with Luther, we can rejoice in the eventual coming of Christ. Lord, we thank you for all the things your word has to say, for the comfort it gives us, for the way Paul can show us how we ought to love one another in any circumstance. And that your return, your crushing of Satan, and of the evil of this world is a great comfort.
and we rest in that. And we have no fear, for you, Lord, have redeemed us. Whether we die today, tomorrow, or in 40 years, when we do, we will be with you. And as Paul says, uh, to live is Christ, and to die, to be with him, uh, is gain. And I pray that whatever we see going on in the world, whatever we feel, whatever fear pops up in us, that we will remember these things. That you are not a God of fear. And we rejoice in you. Normally at this point, uh, we'd sing a song, and then in a couple of minutes I'd get back up again and, and provide a benediction, but nobody showed up to play any music, so I'm just going to do that now. Uh, two things. First, I just want to encourage all of you, wherever you are, whether you're on your own, with your family, or with others in your home, and just throughout this week, that you would pray uh, that we would be able to meet together again soon. And that you would pray for wisdom for our elders as they navigate all of this and try to figure out uh, day by day, minute by minute, how best to shepherd our church through uncertain times. So that's the first thing. The second thing uh, is what next week will look like, whether we are together or not. The plan is the same. We have finished expositing Romans, except for the last two verses that Adam's going to do in two weeks. Um, so the next two weeks, we're going to do a big summary of the book of Romans, and we're going to do that in two ways. In two weeks, Adam is going to preach a summary, which will be a, a 60 to 70 minute version of the 90 second summary I did at the beginning. So there's your timer, Adam, 60 to 70 minutes. So that's the part two. Part one, though, uh, is something I'm really excited about. Next week, we are going to read the whole book of Romans. In whatever context we're in, whether it's uh, at the church, and we have eight or ten people read it with microphones, and we do it all together in a, in a fully corporate setting, or if it's in our living rooms with four or six or eight people, we're still going to do the same thing. In that context, uh, then you will, will read it rather than us recording it here. Um, but the, the, the principle or the primary teaching time will be from the reading of Romans. Uh, lots of reasons we want to we do this, and it's so exciting, especially exciting to me. F number one, it's a book we've spent a year expositing. So we have spent 12 months, verse by verse, trekking through Romans. It's a big book, and it's easy to lose track. Quickest way to figure out what's going on is to read it. So we're, we're going to do that. That's exercise, uh, the reason number one. The second thing, and this is part of why I'm so excited about it, is because this is how the letter was received originally. Paul wrote this. It got to a church, and the only way they could tell everybody about it, because they weren't going to copy it 90 times, was to read it. So the church in Rome and the house churches in Rome all got together, and they read the letter of Paul. And that's what we're going to do. That's how this letter came to them. Uh, it's also a direct exhortation for us from 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.13, we spent a lot of time in pastoral epistles going through instructions. One of them in 4.13 says, Until I come, this is Paul writing, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. And those are separate things. We exhort Scripture, but we're also supposed to read it publicly. And not just a verse here or there. Uh, definitely Paul in his head would have had the Old Testament uh, pattern and the synagogue pattern of the of the Israelites in his head where they read huge chunks of scripture together uh, on their Sabbath meetings. Uh, the other reason we, we want to do this is because it's following in a biblical pattern. 
of reading scripture corporately. You can start, start right back at uh, the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. Moses got the law, and he read them the whole thing. So we, if we really wanted to follow the pattern, we'd do this with the whole book of Leviticus. We're going to start with Romans, because that feels a little easier to start, right? So Israel at Mount Sinai is another example. When King Josiah found the Torah in the temple, he was so heartbroken that the nation hadn't been following it that he read the whole Torah to the whole, like they gathered in Jerusalem and had Passover and said, we're going to read the whole Torah because we need to know what to do. Uh, another one, when Ezra and Nehemiah were leading the people after they were exiled, they returned to Jerusalem, they're rebuilding the city, and they do the same thing. They recommit the nation through the law of God and publicly read it and affirm it all together. So I'm very excited about it. I think there's something incredible that we will experience uh, through the corporate reading of Scripture. There's something exciting about reading 60 minutes of Romans that's different about reading it alone. When you're reading it alone, there's time in your mind and space in your thinking for you to say, you know, the, the, for the, the doubt that creeps in. Do I really believe this? Like, this is kind of wild. I know we spent a year on it, but like, it's just me. Like, nobody else is here. And your brain does that. But in a group, when you're sitting, whether it's eight people in your living room or a hundred of us next Sunday, to read Romans and look around and recognize everybody else in the room is affirming this. I'm part of something incredible. This is something that we share in common confession. Uh, to assist us in this, we're going to provide some resources uh, in the middle of the week. We'll send them out, and then also next Sunday we're going to do some things uh, in addition to the reading. So uh, Bible Project is one phenomenal resource that church uh, leadership has affirmed historically. It's, it's a really, really great reference tool. It, they produce amazing things. If you're not familiar with them, check them out. Uh, there's two videos, five-minute videos, that they've produced that are going to be wonderfully helpful in that practice next Sunday. The first one is their summary video on the book of Romans. So they go through the whole book of Romans in five minutes and pictorially summarize it for you. So if you're a visual learner, go for it. It's, it's awesome. So we'll send that out midweek. And then they also did a five-minute summary on what I just said, the, the principle of corporate reading of Scripture in Scripture. What does the Bible say about doing it? Why is it important? How can we practice it? And they put together a five-minute video on that that we'll send out as well. And that one we'll distribute for next Sunday uh, to show whether here or in your homes. So all that to say, this is uh, coming to the end of Romans is just a phenomenal opportunity to carry out this practice uh, since we've already got the foundation of teaching and exposition. We already know, and at least we have a, a recorded record of, what we think about the book of Romans. So now we can read it and see it all together. And again, in two weeks, Adam will provide a, a summary sermon on the whole book. So to conclude our time together, I'm just going to read the very end of the book of Romans. Chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, I pray that we would keep these things in mind, that even in this time of uncertainty, we would remember that you are the only wise God, that you know what is happening in this world, that you have your hand upon it, and you have great love for your people. And although we have fear at times and doubt at times, 
that we would remember your wisdom, your ways are so much higher and better than our ways. And we can rest in great comfort at your sovereignty that it is you in charge and not us. We pray that you would just provide us peace this week in whatever circumstance we find ourselves and that we would be a body who loves one another and provides for one, another need, one another's needs, especially in these kinds of times. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.